I think I'm safe in saying that you have been hearing a fairly consistent message over the past seven months here at St. George's. It is this. Bad times offer a good opportunity to reevaluate what's most important. I think we've been saying that a lot to one another. So if there's a silver lining in this hard year when so much is disrupted, so much is uncertain, so much is contested, it is the hidden blessing found in returning to first-order priorities. Christians call this activity by its biblical name, repentance. Repentance means to turn again to God as the primary reality shaping our lives. I heard someone recently say the following. said, when I am asked some years from now how I responded to the events of the year 2020, I want to be able to offer more than the list of Netflix series I watched. As for me, I want to share more than the list of issues and concerns and crises that I fretted about, worried about, and complained about in the year 2020. Instead, I want to be able to say how the events of the year 2020 helped me become a better Christian and helped me accept the realities of the day and the people around me in these realities. So I think this is the unexpected blessing to us all, to turn again to the good news in bad times. And I don't suggest this comes naturally to us. So I want us to take a look at the Old Testament reading that you heard just a few moments ago. It is a story um, that we ought to be able to relate to fairly easily, I think. It is a story of the ancient Israelites allowing their own experience of good news to be overwhelmed by the experience of bad times. And one would have hoped for the opposite. I think Moses had hoped for better from them. So we are in the book of Exodus, and undoubtedly you are familiar with the basic shape of this story. It is the central event, the central event, the Exodus, uh, in the entire Old Testament um, for Israel's historic self-understanding, how they regard themselves and understand their relationship to God. We go to the Exodus event. Of course, the book begins with the people of Israel enslaved in Egypt. As you remember, Moses is plucked out of obscurity to be God's messenger to go to Pharaoh and to demand that Pharaoh allow God's people, the Israelites, to go to freedom. And we have the Passover. We have the parting of the Red Sea through which the Israelites escape from their captivity on their way home. And I know that you've looked at maps. You've seen satellite images. The there's a, there's a land that lies between Egypt and this other land that has been promised to Israel, and it's called the Sinai Peninsula. It is a desert wasteland. I had the privilege actually once of flying over it from Cairo to Amman, Jordan, and looked out the window and said, that is a very inhospitable-looking place. And I had some renewed sympathy for the people of Israel having to spend 40 years there. Well, it doesn't take much time at all 
um, after the Israelites reach the shores in safety, after they've been delivered into the Sinai Peninsula on their way, that the figurative wheels come off the wagon. Almost as soon as they are on their own, free by God's grace, there is quarreling, there is rebelling, there's fretfulness, there's grumbling. Now what are we going to do? What are we going to do for work? What are we going to do for food? What are we going to do for water? Um, they don't like these changes. In, in many ways, they want to go back. At least back in Egypt, they had work and food and water. And so they are allowing the bad times of the moment to overwhelm the good news of freedom. And in our reading today, we hear the miracle story of water from the rock. I think this too is a familiar episode, but I, I think it's also important to place it in the proper context. It comes in a series of three stories of complaint, chapters 15, 16, and 17. This is the third today. But in the first one, um, they've just come into their freedom. They come to an oasis in the desert called Marah, and there's water, but the water tastes bitter, and they complain about that. It doesn't taste good. So God does a miracle and makes it sweet for them. They continue onward, and then they begin to moan about all the good food that they had in Egypt. They're feeling hungry, and God does another miracle. Manna rains down from the sky. There's enough, actually, day after day for them to eat. And then today, the third episode in succession, again complaining, this time about water in the desert, and we're told all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on in the wilderness by stages and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled against Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Is the Lord among us or not? The people complained and quarreled with Moses. They quarreled and tested the Lord. And Moses does a little bit of a complaining here as well. He tests God himself. What am I going to do with these people? They're terrible. I'm afraid they're going to stone me. And it's unrecorded, but I have to believe he then followed up and said, uh, maybe I should stone them first. <laughs> That's not what it says. God instead says, Moses, take a staff, walk among the people, walk through them to a large rock, Strike the rock, and as you know, the water gushes out, a stream of living water in the desert. So this is quite simply, I think, a story about the people's lack of trust in the God who delivered them out of Egypt, continuing to provide for them. And the question about them is the question about us. Why are we all like that? So let's face it, there's a lot to be grumbling about in this day. Some are, may I say it, more naturally predisposed to grumbling than others, but we all fall to the temptation to grumble. And this temptation to grumble and quarrel and complain arises from a very simple reality that we all know. Life does not conform to all of our wishes. Life does not turn out so often the way we thought it would or think it should. And actually, this is the very first mark of maturity when we realize this. The year 2020 has not gone according to anyone's plans when we celebrated 
New Year's Eve. And it's just not that we're living through a time of great grumbling and quarreling. It is that so much of it seems unrestrained. Examples abound of unregulated passion, an inability or an unwillingness to moderate emotional responses to things that are legitimately wrong, that legitimately need attention, that are legitimately displeasing and anxiety-producing. And I think Christians need to take stock of our own response to all of that kind of response because it can rob us of our joy and our hope in the gospel that is meant to fuel a kind of counter-witness in a world like that. So what if the most creative thing that we could do in bad times is to return to a cultivation of gratitude? What if that were the most creative thing that we could do? I subscribe, as I'm sure many do, to uh, several uh, daily online devotional things that come into my inbox. They're there when I wake up in the morning. This past week, I was reading one that was making an interesting point. It really made me think. And he was talking about St. Paul, how in his letters, when he exhorts the recipients of his letters to pray, so often he's not exhorting them to pray for things that they want. He's exhorting them to pray in remembrance of what God has already done for them. And it's true as you look at his letters. Pray in thanksgiving. Pray in thanksgiving for what God has already done. This God who liberated Israel liberates you in Christ. What simple advice. So the church in her wisdom down through the ages has always, always recognized that we need help. We need resources uh, to help order and regulate our passions and our loves, um, our responses to things that um, uh, go awry of our, our hopes and our dreams. And, and we call these the spiritual disciplines. And so I'm, I'm arguing, as we have been, again, for about seven months now, that this is a, an especially good time for all of us to return as the people of God to some of those disciplines, indeed the core disciplines, to prayer, to Scripture, to worship, worshiping in person in a limited fashion or online, to talking about what we discern God is doing in a time like this and in our lives with people who are close to us, our spouses, our friends, and our families and in small groups, and to engage others in service around us. The people of God have been liberated, but they live with this deep anxiety about a world that still in so many ways is characterized by deprivation and danger and unpredictability and brokenness. And they still cling to their ideas about how the world should be ordered. And they grumble in the face of uncertainty. And in a word, they fail at gratitude. And it made them unattractively quarrelsome and complaining. And it stripped them of joy. Several summers ago, I was back in my hometown of Tappahannock, Virginia, uh, on the eastern side of the state, and I uh, happened to go to the local marina, and I was talking to a young man there who was a motorboat mechanic, and I won't imitate the Tappahannock accent for you now. Um, it comes from down here in the throat, but it's still in me. I could if I wanted to. Um, 
So I was talking to this guy, and I was just, you know, asking him about his work, and he said something very interesting that stuck with me. He said, you know, uh, these motors, and he was working on a motor, he said, they're meant to be run all the time. And he said, you know, um, if, if, if uh, I'm working on a motor that's run all the time, it's much easier to fix. But, I, you know, I get some guy from Richmond who comes down here every, you know, few weekends to run his boat, and it breaks down. It's really hard to fix his motor. He said, we got watermen who are out every single day, and they're not taking real good care of their boats or their motors. They can sink these boats, and they get them up out of the water. They bring them in here. We clean it up, dry it out. We can start it right back up. How interesting. And so I think about that by way of analogy for us today. So if we're not running our engines of gratitude as a matter of habit, it may be that they're harder to start if we feel like we're sinking. So I want to make an important point here. To be people of gratitude is not, it is not to ignore problems. It is not to say, oh, things aren't so bad. Just be thankful. It is not to turn away from things that understandably do cause anxiety and uncertainty and pain. So I note that in none of these three stories of complaint that we get in quick succession in Exodus, do we have sort of the following? Um, the, the people complain that the water is bitter, and God says, taste fine. That's not the story. God makes it taste sweet for them. There was, indeed no, there was indeed a lot more food in Egypt than there was in the Sinai Peninsula. God doesn't say, no, there wasn't. It's just as much here. There was not, in fact. And he provided manna. When the people today say, we have no water, and they start quarreling. God does not say to them, well, you shouldn't be thirsty in the first place. God provides water from the rock. In all these stories, God provides what is needed, and the anger of God comes from the people's forgetting who he really is, their failure to be people of gratitude because they are the people that God delivers into freedom. So from the time of the Exodus story that we hear today until our very own times, a, quick, a key question for the people of God has always been this. Can we you to count on God to deliver us through life's challenges and disappointments and sufferings? Can we count on God? And more than that, can we grow and prosper in the faith, to become even more alive, even if it feels, indeed, it is the case, that we thirst and we die? And the answer, of course, is yes, through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And all these stories of God providing sustenance, life, food, and water in a place like the wilderness are prefiguring the cross of Jesus. It has been pointed out before that God does not instruct Moses to strike the people, but rather to strike a rock. So too at Golgotha. What an odd thing to do, an unlikely thing to do. Surely a desert stone is the least likely place to come across a source of living water. So too in the crucified Jesus of Nazareth. 
for surely a crude cross on a dusty hill is the least likely place that we would expect to come to the very source of life itself. And I think there is the secret, as always, to the Christian life. It is the secret of letting go of all of our prescriptions of how we think the world should go and accepting again with gratitude how it does go in spite of the appearance of things according to this one who brings water from the rock and life from the rock, who is Jesus.